Uh, the book of Joshua. We're going to begin this morning a new series of studies in this book. Uh, if the Bible is new to you, it's the sixth book in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. It's the story of how Israel acquired the most valuable piece of real estate in the world. It's the story of the conquest and settlement of the land of Canaan. The, uh, the book is divided into two equal parts. The first 12 chapters of the book deal with the conquest of the land. The last 12 chapters, from chapters 13 through 24, the settlement of the land. Now, because we're familiar with the stories of Jericho and I and some of the other great battles in the book of Joshua, we're inclined to think that the entire book is the story of conquest. Actually, it is not. The, the theme of the book is not the conquest of the land of Canaan, but rather the possession of it. Twenty-seven times in the book we're told that God gave them the land in order to possess it. And that's the theme that we're going to uh, try to trace through the book. Now, before we talk about the book of Joshua and, and I give you a little bit of historical and geographical background of the book, I want to talk a little bit about the, the land itself and what I would call a theology of geography. God is not only the God of history, he also is the God of the land. And uh, in order to understand the approach we're going to take to this book, I want to go back into the Old Testament and show you the roots of the promised land. Now, turn with me, if you will, to uh, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. You can take the map uh, that's on the front of the bulletin out and uh, put that in the uh, in in the in chapter one of Joshua because we'll be referring to that map in a moment. Uh, in chapter fourteen. There is the story of Abraham's encounter with five great Mesopotamian kings, one of whom is probably none other than Hammurabi himself, who was made famous by his code. These were five of the most powerful men in the ancient Near East at the time. They raided the city of Sodom. They kidnapped Abraham's nephew, Lot. Abraham gathered some of his servants, went after Lot, raided these kings, routed them by night, and rescued Lot. Then he went back to the land fearful of his life because he knew that they would probably raid the city of Canaan as some sort of punitive raid because of the action he had taken. And he was fearful. He had forgotten at this point that God had promised that he would possess the land. Back in chapter 12, Abraham was told that a great nation would spring from his loins he was to become the father of many nations, and God would give him a land. That land was promised. That's why we call it the promised land. Abraham was told, this piece of land is yours by right of inheritance. God guaranteed it. But after this battle with uh, Hammurabi and his kin, uh, Abraham was, uh, he was frightened. And God assures him in chapter 15 that the promise is still good. Don't be afraid, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Then what God did was to secure the covenant by means of contract. He did what was normally done in the ancient world in order to make a contract or cut it, as the idiom has it. Uh, Abraham took a number of animals and birds, separated them, and 
the normal practice was to walk through the midst, through the uh, between the halves of those animals, as a way of guaranteeing that the contract was good. The implication seems to be, may this happen to me uh, if I default on the contract? In this case, however, God and Abraham did not walk together through the animals. God put Abraham to sleep, and God Himself walked through the animals. The the contract was, as theologians put it, monergistic. It depended upon the work of God alone. It had nothing to do with, with Abraham and his activity. God said to Abraham, I'm reading verse 13. God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. That would be the land of Egypt. Where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. That was their compensation for these years of oppression and in slavery. And in slavery. But I will also judge the nations whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation... They shall return here, that is, your descendants shall return here to the land of Canaan. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch. These were symbols for the presence of God which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made or cut a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land. And then so there will be no doubt the dimensions of the land are spelled out from the river of Egypt, which is a little brook, midway between uh, what, what we would call today the modern land of Israel and Egypt. This is not the Nile. From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenite, those are Midianites, the Kenizzites, those were the descendants of Esau. The Cadmonites, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, the Jebusite, the Chigarbite. <laughs> I can never resist that. These were all the people that, in Abram's day, inhabited the land. God said, that's the land that I am, am giving to you. That's my... That's my promise. Now, we need to understand that the war of conquest that uh, is described for us in the book of Joshua is not a war of aggression. It is the result of the judgment of God. One of the reasons I wanted you to go back to this passage is because I not only want you to see the promise, I also want you to observe that God permitted his people to suffer oppression and slavery for 400 years while he waited for the Amorites to repent. That's the significance of verse 16. In the fourth generation, that is 400 years later, assuming that a generation is 100 years in that day, in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. An Amorite would be exactly the right word for Abraham. He would understand precisely what God was referring to, Abraham originally came from Babylon. The Babylonians, or the Chaldeans, referred to the Canaanites as Amuri, or Amorites. Uh, the word simply means those that live off to the west. 
Canaan was west of the Tigris-Euphrates area, Mesopotamia, and it was these people that the Babylonians were thinking of when they referred to Amorites. They had an ethnic joke that they passed around about the Amorites. We know about it because it's been found on a clay tablet. It goes something like this. And this is what the Babylonians say, who, remember, were not paragons of morality themselves. The Babylonians say, the Amorite says... You be, uh, the Amorite says to his wife, excuse me, the Amorite says to his wife, you be the man and I'll be the woman. The indication is that even the Babylonians thought there was something, something very deviant about Amorites, something very kinky that was going on. And both the Bible and the literature of the Canaanites bears that out. There's something very, very wrong about these people. It really goes all the way back to, uh, to Canaan, who was their ancestor, who was the son of Ham. And in the very beginning of his life, there was some deviant behavior. It's not spelled out in Genesis 9, but there's some indication that there's something very wrong about this young man's sex life. And that's amplified as we move on through the Old Testament. All these Canaanites were just chips off the old block. They were exactly like their ancestor Canaan. When I was at Cal, I took a course in uh, the Canaanite language. It was sort of a lost cause. At least it was lost on me. I was in school with all of these bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young graduate students who read everything and forget nothing. And I would come home every day, and Carolyn would say, did you learn anything? And I, I would answer, as the little girl answered when she came home the first day from kindergarten, her mother asked her, did you learn anything? And she said, they teach me, and they teach me, and they teach me, but they didn't learn me nothing. And uh, that's the way I felt about the Canaanite language. I struggled through that thing. But I did learn one thing, and that is, if I needed to learn it, that what the Bible says about the Canaanites is absolutely right. I have read their books. They're interesting people. they, They are what we would call today the beautiful people, highly cultured, very sophisticated people. They wrote beautiful poetry. It sounds like our psalms, the psalms and the psalter that we read. Uh, Archaeologists today, when they dig down through uh, ruins of these ancient cities and they work through their way through the Israeli levels and, and their pottery is crude and their architecture is crude and they break down into these Canaanite levels and they discover these beautiful buildings and pottery that's about the thickness of a playing card, beautifully decorated materials. These were very sophisticated, very cultured people, and they were rotten to the core. Their religion was corrupt. Society was debased. There was absolutely nothing salvageable about this this culture. They were of no, no value to themselves or to anyone else. They, in, in their religion, they, they, they worshipped El. He was a sort of distant, aloof god. They also worshipped Baal. And uh, Baal had three, three consorts, three girlfriends. One of them was named Anat. And there's a harrowing story in, in one of their books about a conflict she had with a number of warriors who came into a room and she armed herself with whatever weapons she, she could find and she began to to fill the room with the bodies of these warriors. She cut off their heads, 
Their heads are described as flying through the air like locusts. Their bodies littered the floor. She waded in their blood up to her knees and up to her waist. She washed her hands in their gore, is, is the word that's used. And she laughed. She's a, a sort of 16th century B.C. Rambo S. You touch on my car, I, I bust your nose. It's that sort of attitude. No concern for the sanctity or value of human life. Totally devoid of that sort of thing in Canaanite culture. Comes through at every point. Very violent people. The, the other uh, element that characterized Canaanite society was their sexual behavior. Every known deviant sexual practice was condoned in Canaanite culture. We know that's a fact because you find it in their literature and because the Old Testament tells us it's so. On, on your own, read through Leviticus 18 this afternoon. Be a good exercise. Because it spells out in detail what practices of the Canaanites the, the Israelis were to avoid. Moses says, said, when you go into the land, don't do the things these people do. And then he spells out what they did. No holds barred. You know, normally, uh, you look at our law codes here in the United States, and law codes do not specify sins that are universally condemned. In other words, I don't know of any laws on our, our books here in Idaho that prohibit child sacrifice. Because we all agree child sacrifice is wrong. It may fall under the general laws having to do with murder and the taking of human life. But nevertheless, it's not spelled out. But in Leviticus 18, it is spelled out. Moses says, do not uncover the nakedness of your mother. Now that idiom, that's more than nudity. That's, an, that's a well-known Semitic idiom for sexual intercourse. Do not uncover the nakedness of your mother. Now, the, this law was addressed to men. You have to understand that. I mean, in a patriarchal society, that's what you expect. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father. Do not uncover the nakedness of your sister or your brother or your nephew or your niece or a woman and her daughter or a woman and her granddaughter. Do not lie with an animal as one would lie with a man. Do not lie with a man as one would lie with a woman. Excuse me. Do not lie with an animal as one would lie with a woman. Do not lie with a, with a man as one would lie with a woman. And as you look down through that list, you, you, you come to understand that they were guilty of incest and bestiality and homosexuality. And it not only was practiced, it was commended. And those, those are the two characteristics of Canaanite culture, violence and deviant sexual behavior. I couldn't help but think, as I went back over this in my mind this past week, those are the two elements that we use to rate movies these days. Do you realize that? Sex and violence. Which may tell us something about our own culture. When that culture became so debased that there was nothing socially redeemable about it, God sent the Israelites into the land to destroy that culture. And it just strikes me that we may be on the verge of that kind of judgment ourselves. When, we, when life means nothing to us, when the sanctity of an unborn child, 
when every form of deviant sexual behavior is not only practiced but condoned, we have no reason to expect that we can avoid the judgment of God. We cannot think of ourselves as so righteous that God will somehow pass over those sins. He may send a nation greater than we to bring us to our knees. You see what what God is saying about these Amorites? The cup of their iniquity is being filled up drop by drop. And after four generations of suffer, have suffering, then I'm going to judge these people and I'm going to judge them through you. You will be the instrument of judgment that I will use. Now, you have to understand these people were not without light. God brought Abraham into that land and Abraham went from place to place building his altar and making proclamation in the name of the Lord, as Genesis puts it. He was an evangelist. He witnessed to the Canaanites. And they rejected the light. As a matter of fact, God says if one of, of that group of Canaanites, one of the general family of Canaanites, he says they have raised up their fist against the throne of God. This was more than mere sin. This was rebellion. They knew the light, and, and, and they had rebelled against it. I was reading this past week a book by Henry Nouwen, who is a, a Dutch uh, Catholic who teaches at Harvard University. And uh, he has coined a phrase that struck my attention. He said, the United States is guilty of what he calls scotitis. Scotos is the Greek word for, for darkness. And scotitis is a sickness of darkness. He says, uh, uh, he coins another word, a scotoma, for the blind spots that we have in our morality. And he says, the problem is that we are so sick we aren't even aware that we're sick. We have this disease that he described as scotitis, darkness. And we will not let the light shine upon us, which is exactly what Jesus said, that men and women will not come to the light because their deeds are evil. And that's what had happened to Canaanite culture. This society was corrupt to the core, which for, explains for me the moral dilemma of these, these wars that are, are described in, in the book of Joshua. There does come a point when, when God judges sin. And in this case, the sins of generations of Canaanites were finally judged. Now, here and there, there were Canaanites that responded to the light. Rahab's a beautiful example of one who responded to the truth. And we'll talk about her in a couple of weeks. But this culture in general and in a whole, and as a whole, was, was corrupt. God made his covenant that day with Abraham, and he promised that he would have the land that's specified here in verses 18 through 21. And Abraham lived in the land for a time, and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and then that whole patriarchal family, Jacob and his 12 sons, they went down into Egypt, 70-plus people, and down there they became a nation. Nations have three elements, or three elements make up a nation. They, they have a people, they have a constitution, they have a land. Israel became a nation as they crossed the, the, uh, the Red Sea. They, they, as the Old Testament puts it, God acquired a people when he brought them across the Red Sea. They were taken down into uh, the Sinai Peninsula, and there they received their constitution. They marched up to Kadesh, the, the big oasis, great oasis, the southern end of the land of Canaan, ready to go into the land. As you know, they refused to go in. They turned back out of unbelief. If you have your maps out now... 
You see Edom at the very bottom. Kadesh is a bit uh, to the southwest of, of that, that uh, place on the map. Uh, they camped there. They turned back there. They scattered into wandering bands of shepherds for 38 years. They regathered there after that 40-year period of wandering. Then they made their way by a, a, a sort of a circuitous route over to the region that's called Gad here. Gad is one of the tribes of Israel. You'll see where it's located in the cross-hatched section of, of the Promised Land, just to the east of the, of, of the Jordan River. Jordan River is the river that runs from Dan, way up to the north, down into the Dead Sea. There are actually two... Two campaigns in Transjordan. We call this area to the east of Jordan, Transjordan, because everything is, is, is seen from the standpoint of, of the land of Canaan. So this is across the Jordan. There are two campaigns there under Moses. Those are normally not associated with the conquest, but they're very much a part of it. You notice uh, down on the right-hand corner, there's an asterisk just above Mediva. Uh, where you see Reuben, and just above Heshbon, there was one great battle there under under Moses, where they defeated the the Amorites there. Heshbon is the capital city. There was another great battle up at Edrei. There's no asterisk there. There should be, but uh, just uh, you'll see right along the edge, the little town of Edrei. There was a second battle there where they defeated Bashan. And then they came back to that region and they camped between uh, the Acacia Meadow and um, the little town of uh, Beth Jeshimoth. You see that just to the southeast of the, of the Dead Sea. Uh, a couple of million people camped there in the plains of Moab in that highland area. They arrived there in the spring of the year when the Jordan River was in flood stage. As you know, God made a way through the Jordan River. And then there were three campaigns in the land of, of Canaan. We'll be looking at those in some detail as we make our way through the first 12 chapters of the book. First, they drove across the middle of the land. This is what's normally called the central campaign. They took the cities of Jericho and Ai. You'll notice the asterisk there by Jericho and another asterisk by Ai. They had to break the back of Canaanite resistance. You have to understand, uh, Canaanite was not unified into one one country, as the United States uh, is. Uh, There were city-states, little little nations, all centered in a city. And uh, they had to take these one after another. The first was Jericho. Now, we're going to talk about Jericho in a couple of weeks. It's just an incredible story, and it becomes even more incredible when you understand what the Israelites were up against. When we think of a walled city, we think of a freestanding wall like this brick wall over here, and that's the way it's normally uh, pictured in our Sunday school books. But that's, that's not the case. That's not what they were confronted with. You have to understand, this was the first time, as far as we know, an Israelite had ever seen a walled city. Egyptians didn't wall their cities. They didn't need to because the, the Sinai protected them. They had some fortresses out there in the desert, but no wall cities in Egypt. The people over in modern-day Oman, this area that we talked about a moment ago, the highlands of Moab, uh, they didn't have wall cities either, as best we can tell. Jericho was the first wall city an Israelite had ever seen. And you have to understand what they were up against. 
I have a, a friend who dug in Israel a number of years ago, and because he was an amateur, they put him out on the outskirts of the dig so he wouldn't do any damage. He was, he was at the city of Gezer. There are no remains from Joshua's time except some tombs in, in Jericho because the whole city has eroded away. It was unoccupied for hundreds of years. The city just washed away, so there are no ruins there from his time. There are some earlier and later walls. But the walls that my friend excavated in Gezer would date from about this time, 15th century B.C. Uh, they put him out on the outskirts so he wouldn't do any harm, gave him some students to dig with, and he tried to be faithful to his task, and he dug uh, about 10 feet down. He came across these big big roads that looked like paving stones for a Roman road. So he extended the ditch out of ways, and he just found more of these rocks, more than you would normally find. So he started throwing these rocks out and digging down. He went down about 10 or 15 feet and just kept running into rocks. They kept getting bigger and bigger, and he thought, I wonder what I, what I have here. So he extended the uh, ditch, uh, his trench out a couple of directions and discovered that he'd come down right on the top of the city wall of the city of Gazers, one of, one of the, the prime finds in any, uh, any city. When he finally uncovered that wall, he discovered that the wall around Gezer was 41 feet across at the top, which is about the distance from where I am to the back of this, of this auditorium. And it was 61 feet tall, which is three times the height of, of these walls. At its base, it was probably 150 feet thick because it wasn't a straight up and down freestanding wall. It was built, it was earthworks like this, built like the Lucky Peak Dam. Uh, the outside of it was plastered. It was, it was uh, at a 45-degree angle, and it was plastered so that they couldn't get their, their war machines, their battering rams up against the wall. There was simply no way, absolutely no way, that they could have conquered that city. They had no catapults. They had no battering rams. They had a few bows and arrows. They were not soldiers. They were shepherds and farmers. And they brought the city of Jericho down. We'll look at that story in a couple of weeks. Then they made their way up a couple of thousand feet higher to the little city of Ai. And they looked up on top of this ancient ruin. There was an old tell there, a flat-topped ruin. And as best we can tell, there was no wall around that city at all. And so they decided this is no problem. We won't even send all the people. And they they assaulted that uh, little uh, Little Hill, and they suffered a disastrous defeat. The only loss of life, as best we can tell, throughout the entire 25-year campaign. They were defeated and driven back, and we'll see why when we look at the story of I. Well, that was the central campaign. Then they went to the south. You'll see another asterisk uh, right before, well, if you see Judah in the crosshatch section, there's another asterisk there, and Some cities that are indicated by square blocks, Libna, Eglon, Lachish, Yarmouth, Hebron. There was a coalition, a confederacy of a number of kings. God gave them a spirit of foolishness. They left their walled cities and tried to fight the Israelites out on the plains. And they were were conquered. That part of Judah was secured. Then they drove up to the north, way up north, where you see Dan, just south of Dan. You'll see another asterisk by the waters of Merom, city of Hatzor, or Hazer, we say. That was the third uh, campaign. So there was a central campaign, a southern campaign, a northern campaign. In less than 25 years, they conquered that entire land. 
They did not conquer the plains, just the, the high country. The crosshack section there is actually part of a north-south ridge. And it's that area that they conquered. It was sometime later that they conquered the uh, plains below the, uh, below the hills. Now that's the story of the conquest. And uh, the explanation for it is given in Deuteronomy 9. Would you turn there with me, please? Uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you're crossing over the Jordan today to go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven with walls 60 feet tall, 150 feet thick across the base, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, who know, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. That was, a, that was the phrase that the uh, spies brought back, the ten spies brought back from the land uh, 40 years before when they, uh, when they made uh, their uh, journey through the land. That statement had become proverbial, can't be done. Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as the consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as the Lord has spoken to you. Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It's not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess it, because you are a stubborn people. God did it out of grace. They took the land, and they, they, they gained possession of it because it was God's gift to them. Now, what, you know, what we don't want to do as we're going through this book is just talk history and geography. We want to learn the lessons of faith and obedience that come from this book. So how shall we look at the book as we, as we study it? Let, let, me, let me share with you three themes that I hope to develop as we read our way through this book. The first is the theme of, of the land. Uh, turn, turn to chapter 11 of Joshua, please. I mentioned last week, some of you were uh, up breathing the smoke last, last week, and uh, you, you, you aren't privy to this way of looking at the book. So I just for those of you that, that weren't here, I want to sketch in just in a little bit of detail some of the significance of, of the land. There are clues all the way through the book that there's more than, than land to the land. There's this idea of now and not yet. That comes through all the way through the book. Now, here's an example. Look at chapter 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. So they possessed the whole land. Now look at 13.1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. This would be at a later date. 
When the Lord said to him, You were old and advanced in years, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. And we say, Now, wait a minute, what's going on here? You, in one place, Joshua says, the, the, the land is yours, you've possessed it all, the land had rest from war. And another place, we're told that there's much more yet to be gained. You haven't possessed it all. So there's this idea of now and not yet. There's more. There's more coming. And that gets picked up by the other writers in the Old Testament. David, 400 years later, points out that the people of his time are not yet in the land. Not all of them. Now, by, uh, by the time of David, the, the land that had been given to them by the Abrahamic covenant was in, in Israeli hands. David had conquered everything from the Euphrates all the way to the river of Egypt and all the way from the country we would call Jordan today, all the way over to the Mediterranean. It was in his hands. He had the whole thing. As a matter of fact, the statement is made, the land had rest from war. And David, at this time, said, no, there's more. There's more today. Some of you have to enter into the land. You haven't possessed it yet. So, again, we have this idea of now Israel's living in the land, and, and, and yet there's more. There's more. And then a thousand years later, you read in the book of Hebrews the same statement. He quotes David, and he says, there's still land, even today, a thousand years after David's time, 1,400 years after Joshua was given the land, there still is a lot of land to be possessed. And so we begin to see that there's something more to the land than a mere piece of real estate. This is a picture. It's a symbol. It's a type of something greater. It's an illustration of what Peter uh, describes as uh, as the fact that God has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. The land is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of what we have in Christ. It's a type of all the good things that God wants to give us when we come under His under His lordship. And we have it all right now, except we have to appropriate appropriate it one bloody foot. At a time. Please do not think that the Christian life is a Sunday school picnic. It is not. It is a war. It is a conflict. Paul says we wrestle against flesh and blood. And against principalities and powers. We're up against the ten nations of the Canaanites in spiritual form. And we will have to fight for every bloody inch that we appropriate. That's why things go wrong in your family. That's why you struggle in your marriage. That's why you have a hard time with your kids. That's why your health fails. That's why you're, you're opposed and why people resist you and resent you and reject you. Those are all the spiritual forces that are arrayed against you that are trying to keep you from claiming the ground that is yours by right of inheritance. So you have to go out and take it. It's promised. You have to appropriate it. Now, I'm convinced that, that the events that took place, the people that they battled in the cities that they took and the, the, the events that took place are all pictures of some aspect of, of life in, in Christ. For example, if you can think back to the time that you, you made that decision to, to finally go for everything God had for you. 
There's always opposition. Israel came to the Jordan, and they were ready to step into the land and, and take what was legitimately theirs. And we're told that, that the Jordan River was at flood stage. Jordan River is called the Jordan of the Jordan in Hebrew because the word means descender. That river drops from the area around Mount Hermon, which is about 1,500 feet high, the foot of Mount Hermon, down to the Dead Sea, which is 1,300 feet below sea level. And in the spring of the year, that river becomes a raging torrent. I mean, there are tree trunks and debris on the top of the river. And, and in some places, it spreads out to three miles or more in width. And there are several different channels of varying depth. And no one forded the River Jordan at flood tide. No one did. It was absolutely impossible. And we're told that when, when the people of God came to Jordan and they were ready to step into the land to claim everything that God had for them, it was at flood stage. And you've had that experience. You, you came to that point in your life when you wanted to be rid of all your past and you wanted to step into everything that, that our Lord has for us and, and you had every obstacle in the, in the world thrown in your path. And God has a way of just taking you right through, just as he did his people right through on dry ground. It was a miracle. They got to the other side. They, they formed their beachhead at Gilgal and... And and all that generation was circumcised, which is a a picture of the cutting off of the old life. As as Joshua puts it, we're going to roll away the reproach of Egypt. All the past, the guilt, the blame, the the hurt, the pain of the past, the fear of death, all of that is is, is cut off and put behind us. It's what Paul describes in Romans 6 as our death to the old life. Remember when we talked about Romans 6, I said God takes the volume that we call our old life and he wraps it up in a piece of brown paper and ties a string around it and he puts it up in the highest shelf in the closet and he gives you another book to start writing. And that old volume filled with sin and guilt and death is is behind you and now you, you start, you have a new lease on life. You start writing in a new book. And that happened at Gilgal where the reproach, the ugliness, the awfulness of Egypt was rolled away. And then as they start to take their first step in, in, in the land, they look up and here is this fortified city which represents those strongholds in our life, those deeply rooted, deeply ingrained habit patterns that frustrate us and keep us from entering into all that God has for us, the compulsive behaviors and the habitual actions and the sins that plague us. And, and, and we've struggled with them for years. They're impregnable. And God has a way of bringing them down. We'll discover what that way is when we, when we, we read about the conquest of Jericho. And then, then we, we, we come upon some eye in our life, some little sin that nettles us, but it's no big deal. And we go up against it and we discover that we're defeated time and time again and we don't know why. It's because God has another way of dealing with with sin in our life, and we'll discover what that is when we come to the, to the city of Ai. And as we make our way through all of these events in the book of Joshua, we'll see how each of them relate to the conflict that we experience in the Christian life and how we acquire and appropriate all the good things that, that God has for us. That's, that's the first thing I want you to see. I, I, I'd like for you to understand what it means to appropriate the land. Second thing I want you to see is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. We're fighting a battle that's already won. God promised the people of, of God in his day, in, in Joshua's day, that, 
that the land was theirs, that they'd have it in the end, but, but they still had to go out and fight it. Nevertheless, they knew that they were fighting a battle that, that they had won. Their destiny was fixed and certain they weren't going to lose out. Going to have it all in the end. I uh, went to the BSU game last night, and we froze to death. And uh, I was thinking uh, last night, I, I wish I could have taped that game and that I had some ability to play the tape of that game to the Boise State football players and coaching staff before the game. Because they could have seen the last 18 seconds of the game. As you know, BSU won the game in the, in the last 18 seconds. And things didn't look good all the way through the game. I mean, they looked, they looked real bad for BSU. They couldn't get anything going until the last 18 seconds, and they won the game. Now, I thought if I could have played that for the players and coaches before the game began, it would have set them free from a lot of anguish. You know, they could have been relaxed about the whole thing and enjoyed the game. Uh, Dwayne Halliday would still get beat up, you know, and, and uh, you know, they'd take their shots and they would hurt and they would, uh, there'd be reverses and defeats and penalties and things would go tough all the way through, but they would know they were fighting a battle that was won. That's what the book of Joshua does for me. It's the last 18 seconds of the tape. It tells us that that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, that we're going to get it all in the end. We're going to be like our Lord Jesus when we step into his presence. We're going to be prepared for eternity. The third thing I'd I'd like to say, and I just have a minute, but I, I was so impressed in working through this book with the place that the Word of God has in the book. Joshua is told at the very outset that, uh, that he should take seriously the Word of God. Joshua is an interesting character. I, I, I think on Wednesday morning I'm going to do some character studies on Joshua, starting with Exodus 17, which is where he first, first appears. Joshua appears, he strikes me as a sort of Miles Standish sort of character, uh, deferring to others all the time, sort of in the backdrop, a little shy, transparently uh, simple, really, in his approach to God. Um, Afraid, afraid a lot of the time. God kept saying to Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Now, why would he say that if he didn't feel strong and courageous? He said that because he was scared out of his wits most of the time. And, and God began, in the very beginning of this young general's life, he was the commander of the forces of, of uh, Israel when they, when they crossed the, the Red Sea. He began to prepare this young man for his task. It's an interesting story. In Exodus 17, they had just come across, uh, they just come through the sea, and a month or so later they're making their way down towards Sinai, and... They were attacked from the rear by the Amalekites. You know the story. Moses held up his hands and Israel prevailed. When he let down his hands, Amalek prevailed. It's a beautiful picture of intercessory prayer and the need to pray for those in conflict. And, and uh, this, is, this is the way the battle is won by dependence upon, upon God. And, and Joshua was holding up Moses' arms to keep them from falling down because Moses was getting weary. And he's trying to help Moses in this task of intercession. And God says at the end of the battle, 
says, I'm going to have war with Amalek from generation to generation because they have lifted up their fist against the throne of God. Put that in the book. (laughs) Moses, write that down in your book. And Moses began to to keep a record of what God was doing in the life of of his people. I think that's how the, the books of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy were formed at about that point. Moses began to collect some sources, and he began to write things down, and, and he put it in the book. And Joshua got to see all these events, and then he saw them written in the book. He, he goes up on Mount Sinai with Moses, one of the few people permitted to, to see the glory of God. He saw God's glory reflected in the face of Moses, and then he starts down the mountain, and they hear all his racket at the bottom of the mountain, and Joshua says, sounds like war. Moses says, that in war, that's not the sound of war, that's the sound of partying. And when they got down there, they saw that the Israelites were involved in this sexual orgy and they were dancing around the, the gold calf. And, and Moses ground that calf into powder and made the people drink it as a symbol of the consequences of their sin. And, and he wrote it in a book. And Joshua saw it and he, and he read it. A little bit later, uh, Eldad and Medad started prophesying in the camp. and Joshua heard him, and he went to Moses. Tell these guys to stop. You're the prophet around here. They have no right to, to speak for God. And, and, and Moses corrects him, explains that God, that the Spirit of God has the right to use people as he chooses. And, and Joshua learns that we should never confuse ourselves with God because we're, we're leaders, and he, Moses wrote in the book. And by the time Joshua was ready to take command of, of the forces of Israel, he had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and scrolls, and he could take out that book, and he could look at it, and he could remember the greatness and the grace of God. That's why the book begins on that note. This book of the law. What book of the law? Moses' book, the book that grew for 40 years. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. Now, that's not an idiom for talking. What, what God meant was, was that Joshua was to eat it. He was to eat the word. Jeremiah uses the same symbol when he says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And they were unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. John was, was, was given the same command. Handed the book. Said, eat it. He ate it. Assimilate it. Take it in. Chew on it. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. In other words, uh, we Christians don't just shoot from the hip. We think about what the word means, and we try to apply it to life in meaningful ways. We, when Jesus said, get, get the two before out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of your, someone else's eye, we, we try to think through how that applies to my relationship with my spouse or wherever it applies. You think about it. You eat the word, you take it in, and then you... You meditate on it. You think about ways to apply it and where it fits, and then God says, you do it. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it, and you shall do it. And then, he says, you'll have good success. 
And that became the book of strategy. Those were the tactics. Whenever Joshua was in doubt, he went back to the book. God continued to give him additional information, and the revelation grew, and that's why the book continued to grow. That's why we have the book of Joshua, because more was added. There's one very interesting incident where uh, Joshua was outside the city of Jericho doing what every good general would do. He's reconnoitering. He's walking. It's nighttime. The city's all buttoned up. Under cover of darkness, he goes out all by himself, starts walking around the city, looking up at those walls, 61 feet high, 150 feet thick. He's wondering how in the world we're going to take this city. And he sees a man in the darkness. Draws his sword. He says, are you for us or against us? The man says, No. In other words, I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. I'm the commander-in-chief. And, and, and that became Joshua's mode of operation from that day on. He just kept checking in with the commander-in-chief. God, who in the person of the, of the angel of, of the Lord had guaranteed that he was going to dictate the strategy and the tactics and he was going to... It's going to take Joshua through this whole thing. and They come to the end of, of the book of, of Joshua, chapter 24, and Joshua's rehearsing for the people what God had said. And, 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 and this is what he says. God says, I, I did it. I did it. You didn't do it. Your armies didn't do it. Joshua's wisdom didn't do it. I did it. The, the success came because Joshua was a man of the word. He was totally dependent upon God. Now, what I'd like to ask you to do is to begin to eat the book starting this week. 24 chapters. You could read four chapters a day. It takes you 15, cha- uh, 15 minutes to read four chapters. And begin to, to eat the book of Joshua and think about it. Get into a growth group, into a small group, study. If if you can't do that, you can take the studies and work on them on your own. But come prepared to look at this book. And we want to learn together how to take the land that God has promised. How to fight the battle that's already won. Let's let's stand together and we'll, we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we come again to this great book, this account of of the conquest that that you accomplished. And we're reminded again that that you're the one who who works wonders in our life. You're the one who who sets us free. You're the one who gives us every inch of land that we acquire. We want to learn from this book how you do it and, and what our response should be. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding. Help us as a result to possess more and more of the land. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.